This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Servile State by Hilaire Belloc Section 17 As to the first form, a proletarian group has struck a bargain with a group of capitalists to the effect that it will produce for that capital ten measures of value in a year, will be content to receive six measures of value for itself, and will leave four measures as surplus value for the capitalists. The bargain is ratified. The courts have the power to enforce it. If the capitalists, by some trick of fines, or by bluntly breaking their word, pay out in wages less than the six measures, the courts must have some power of constraining them. In other words, there must be some sanction to the action of the laws. There must be some power of punishment, and through punishment of compulsion. Conversely, if the men, having struck this bargain, go back upon their word, if individuals among them, or sections among them, cease work with a new demand for seven measures instead of six, the courts must have the power of constraining and of punishing them. Where the bargain is ephemeral, or at any rate extended over only reasonable limits of time, it would be straining language, perhaps, to say that each individual case of constraint exercised against the workman would be a case of compulsory labor. But extend the system over a long period of years, make it normal to industry, and accept it as a habit in men's daily conception of the way in which their lives should be conducted, and the method is necessarily transformed into a system of compulsory labor. In trades, where wages fluctuate little, this will obviously be the case. You, the agricultural laborers of this district, have taken fifteen shillings a week for a very long time. It has worked perfectly well. There seems no reason why you should have more. Nay, you put your hands to it through your officials in the year so-and-so that you regarded the sum as sufficient. Such and such of your members are now refusing to perform what this court regards as a contract they must return within the limits of that contract, or suffer the consequences. Remember what power analogy exercises over men's mind, and how, when systems of the sort are common to many trades, they will tend to create a general point of view for all trades. Remember also how comparatively slight a threat is already sufficient to control men in our industrial society the proletarian mass of which is accustomed to live from week to week under peril of discharge, and has grown readily amenable to the threat of any reduction in those wages upon which it can but just subsist. Nor are the courts enforcing such contracts, or quasi-contracts, as they will come to be regarded, the only inducement. A man has been compelled by law to put aside sums from his wages as insurance against unemployment but he is no longer the judge of how such sums shall be used. They are not in his possession. They are not even in the hands of some society which he can really control. They are in the hands of a government official. Here is work offered you at twenty-five shillings a week. If you do not take it, you certainly shall not have a right to the money you have been compelled to put aside. If you will take it, the sum shall still stand to your credit, and when next in my judgment your unemployment is not due to your recalcitrance and refusal to labor, I will permit you to have some of your money, not otherwise. Dovetailing in with this machinery of compulsion, 
is all that mass of registration and docketing which is accumulating through the use of labor exchanges. Not only will the official have the power to enforce special contracts, or the power to coerce individual men to labor under the threat of a fine, but he will also have a series of dossiers by which the record of each workman can be established. No man, once so registered and known, can escape, and of the nature of the system, the numbers caught in the net must steadily increase, until the whole mass of labor is mapped out and controlled. These are very powerful instruments of compulsion indeed. They already exist. They are already a part of our laws. Lastly, there is the obvious bludgeon of compulsory arbitration, a bludgeon so obvious that it is revolting even to our proletariat. Indeed, I know of no civilized European state which has succumbed to so gross a suggestion, for it is a frank admission of servitude at one step and for good and all, such as men in our culture are not yet prepared to swallow. So much, then, for the first argument and the first form, in which compulsory labor is seen to be a direct and necessary consequence of establishing a minimum wage, and of scheduling employment to a scale. The second is equally clear. In the production of wheat, the healthy and skilled man who can produce ten measures of wheat is compelled to work for six measures, and the capitalist is compelled to remain content with four measures for his share. The law will punish him if he tries to get out of his legal obligation, and to pay his workmen less than six measures of wheat during the year. What of the man who is not sufficiently strong or skilled to produce even six measures? Will the capitalist be constrained to pay him more than the values he can produce? Most certainly not. The whole structure of production, as it was erected during the capitalist phase of our industry, has been left intact by the new laws and customs. Profit is still left a necessity. If it were destroyed, still more, if a loss were imposed by law, that would be a contradiction of the whole spirit in which all these reforms are being undertaken. They are being undertaken with the object of establishing stability where there is now instability, and of reconciling, as the ironic phrase goes, the interests of capital and labor. It would be impossible, without a general ruin, to compel capital to lose upon the man who is not worth even the minimum wage. How shall that element of insecurity and instability be eliminated? To support the man gratuitously because he cannot earn a minimum wage, when all the rest of the commonwealth is working for its guaranteed wages, is to put a premium upon incapacity and sloth. The man must be made to work. He must be taught, if possible, to produce those economic values which are regarded as the minimum of sufficiency. He must be kept at that work, even if he cannot produce the minimum, lest his presence as a free laborer should imperil the whole scheme of the minimum wage, and introduce at the same time a continuous element of instability. Hence he is necessarily a subject for forced labor. We have not yet in this country established by force of law the right to this form of compulsion, but it is an inevitable consequence of those other reforms which have just been reviewed. The labor colony, a prison so-called because euphemism is necessary to every transition, will be erected to absorb this surplus, and that last form of compulsion will crown the edifice of these reforms. They will then be complete so far as the subject classes are concerned, 
and even though this particular institution of the labor colony, logically the last of all preceding time, other forms of compulsion, it will make the advent of those other forms of compulsion more certain, facile, and rapid. There remains one last remark to be made upon the concrete side of my subject. I have in this last section illustrated the tendency toward the servile state from actual laws and actual projects which are all today familiar in English industrial society, and I have shown how these are certainly establishing the proletariat in a novel but to them satisfactory servile status. It remains to point out in a very few lines the complementary truth that what should be the very essence of collectivist reform, to wit, the translation of the means of production from the hands of private owners to the hands of public officials, is nowhere being attempted. So far from its being attempted, all so-called socialistic experiments in municipalization and nationalization are merely increasing the dependence of the community upon the capitalist class. To prove this, we need only observe that every single one of these experiments is effected by a loan. Now what is meant in economic reality by these municipal loans and national loans raised for the purpose of purchasing certain small sections of the means of production? Certain capitalists own a number of rail cars, etc. They put to work upon these certain proletarians, and the result is a certain total of economic values. Let the surplus values obtainable by the capitalists, after the subsistence of the proletarians is provided for, amount to 10,000 a year. We all know how a system of this sort is municipalized. A loan is raised, it bears interest, it is saddled with a sinking fund. Now this loan is not really made in money, though the terms of it are in money. It is, at the end of a long string of exchanges, nothing more nor less than the loans of the cars, the rails, etc., by the capitalists to the municipality, and the capitalists require, before they will strike the bargain, a guarantee that the whole of their old profit shall be paid to them, together with a further yearly sum, which, after a certain number of years, shall represent the original value of the concern when they handed it over. These last additional sums are called the sinking fund. The continued payment of the old surplus values is called the interest. In theory, certain small sections of the means of production might be acquired in this way. That particular section would have been socialized. The sinking fund, that is, the paying of the capitalists for their plant by installments, might be met out of the general taxation imposed on the community, considering how large that is compared with any one experiment of the kind. The interest may, by good management, be met out of the true profits of the tramways. At the end of a certain number of years, the community will be in possession of the tramways, will no longer be exploited in this particular by capitalism, will have bought out capitalism from the general taxes, and in so far as the purchase money paid has been consumed and not saved or invested by the capitalists, a small measure of socialization will have been achieved. As a fact, things are never so favorable. In practice, three conditions militate against even these tiny experiments in expropriation. The fact that the implements are always sold at much more than their true value, the fact that the purchase includes non-productive things, and the fact that the rate of borrowing is much faster than the rate of repayment. These three adverse conditions lead in practice to nothing but the riveting of capitalism more securely round the body of the state. 
For what is it that is paid for when a tramway, for instance, is taken over? Is it the true capital alone, the actual plant, which is paid for, even at an exaggerated price? Far from it. Over and above the rails and the cars there are all the commissions that have been made, all the champagne luncheons, all the lawyers' fees, all the compensations to this man and to that man, all the bribes. Nor does this exhaust the argument. Tramways represent a productive investment. What about pleasure gardens, wash-houses, baths, libraries, monuments, and the rest? The greater part of these things are the product of loans. When you put up a public institution, you borrow the bricks and the mortar and the iron and the wood and the tiles from capitalists, and you pledge yourself to pay interest and to produce a sinking fund, precisely as though a town hall or a bath were a piece of reproductive machinery. To this must be added the fact that a considerable proportion of the purchases are failures. Purchases of things just before they are driven out by some new invention. While on the top of the whole business you have the fact that the borrowing goes on at a far greater rate than the repayment. In a word, all these experiments up and down Europe during our generation, municipal and national, have resulted in an indebtedness to capital increasing rather more than twice but not three times as fast as the rate of repayment. The interest which the capital demands, with a complete indifference as to whether the loan is productive or non-productive, amounts to rather more than ten percent, excessive over the produce of the various experiments, even though we count in the most lucrative and successful of these, such as the state railways of many countries, and thoroughly successful municipal enterprises of many modern towns. Capitalism has seen to it that it shall be a winner, and not a loser, by this form of sham socialism, as by every other. And the same forces which in practice forbid confiscation see to it that the attempt to mass confiscation by purchase shall not only fail, but shall turn against those who have not had the courage to make a frontal attack upon privilege. With these concrete examples showing how collectivism, in attempting its practice, does but confirm the capitalist position, and showing how our laws have already begun to impose a servile status upon the proletariat, I end the argumentative thesis of this book. I believe I have proved my case. The future of industrial society, and in particular of English society, left to its own direction, is a future in which subsistence and security shall be guaranteed for the proletariat, but shall be guaranteed at the expense of the old political freedom and by the establishment of that proletariat in a status really, though not nominally, servile. At the same time, the owners will be guaranteed in their profits the whole machinery of production in the smoothness of its working, and that stability which has been lost under the capitalist phase of society will be found once more. The internal strains which have threatened society during its capitalist phase will be relaxed and eliminated, and the community will settle down upon the servile basis which was its foundation before the advent of the Christian faith, from which that faith slowly weaned it, and to which in the decay of that faith it naturally returns. End of section 17